RD Talks, brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Letting Go by Mary Catherine Fish. If we could choose one thing to outlast all others, what better choice would there be but love? Had I been told that I was going to face what I did after my husband was suddenly stricken, I would have said I couldn't survive. But I have. Along the way I learnt the power of simple truths, that life is without guarantees, that every moment counts, and that love endures. Tom and I met at a job interview. Tom told a friend years later, I was trying to interview her, but all I was thinking was that the most beautiful woman I had ever met was sitting right there in my office. Soon afterwards, we began dating. After several months, he broke up with me, then came back weeks later, proclaiming himself ready to commit. After that, we never seriously considered splitting. By 1990, we had become best friends and were madly in love with each other. Four years later, on May 29, 1994, Tom and I got married, committing to face life together. We settled outside Washington, D.C. with our dog Owsley, a border collie mix that Tom had rescued from the pound. Tom was in good physical shape, he'd been a rock climber in his younger days, and now he was an accomplished gardener, so he took care of our house and yard. He also did most of the cooking, and he took care of me. During the first year, everything seemed to be falling into place. Tom planted a rose garden, I made curtains, together we painted, decorated and furnished the house. We both worked as environmental engineers, Tom, 38, was a vice president at a large firm with government and overseas contracts. I had got a job at a smaller company and was taking night courses to earn a master's degree. Carefree and content, I expected our challenges would come in the form of children and life changes. Fate brought us something else. It started the morning after Valentine's Day, 1995. The phone rang at work. It was Tom. Something really weird's just happened, he said, his voice tight. I went to the deli to get lunch. While I was waiting for my sandwich, I went to get a Snapple out of the fridge, but I couldn't get my hand to the handle. I could move my arm, but it didn't feel like my arm. I reassured Tom that he had a flu bug that was going around. But the next morning, he went to see his doctor. The doctor asked him to count by fives and spell the word world backwards. He ordered blood tests and an MRI for the following week. I was sure whatever he had would pass in a few days. On the day of the MRI, I phoned Tom after he returned to his office. He told me that while he was in the imaging machine, it sounded like his head was inside a washing machine, but otherwise it was not bad. That evening when Tom came home, we hugged as usual. Then he pulled away. The doctor called this afternoon, he said. There's an abnormality on the scan. They want to do another tomorrow. Abnormality? What kind of abnormality, I asked. All he said was that it's dumbbell-shaped. After the second MRI... The doctor said it might be an infection. Yes, I thought, that makes sense. Tom had recently travelled to Panama and Slovakia. He could have picked up an infection. The next day we drove into Washington for an appointment with a specialist, Dr Edward Mancini. A receptionist led us to an examining room. Moments later, Dr Mancini rushed in. He had thinning hair and an intense, handsome face with sharp brown eyes. He slapped several sheets of black film onto a lightboard on the wall. They showed cross-sections of Tom's head. Near the base of the brain were two glowing circles, one large, one small. 
Even though there appeared to be two lesions, Dr Mancini commented, it was probably only one, with the connection not visible on the scan. Tom was swallowing repeatedly, staring from the scans to the doctor and back. I sat there thinking, this is not happening. I asked if it could be an infection. Dr Mancini said it was unlikely. He thought it was a glioma, a kind of brain tumour graded 1 through 4, based on whether it grows slowly, 1, or rapidly, 4. Almost all gliomas stay in the brain, he said. That's one good thing. We don't have to fight it anywhere else in the body. Was this supposed to be a comfort? I felt myself sliding into a dark panic. The doctor turned to Tom. You need an operation. I've scheduled it for early next week. The plan for surgery was to shave away Tom's hair, cut a window out of his skull, and remove as much of the lesion as possible. We staggered out of the office, gasping for air and life. We climbed into Tom's Subaru. I rested my head on the steering wheel and sobbed. Tom said, I'm sorry, over and over. That Saturday, we spent most of the day on the telephone. Calling family and friends, I was blunt and unnaturally calm, like a radio announcer giving instructions during an emergency. It appears that Tom has a brain tumour. He is having surgery on Tuesday. Tom phoned his two siblings, Anne and John, and his parents. Then he called his best friends Wayne Logan and Sam Sellersnick. Most of his conversations were serious, but not the one with Wayne, who is half sage, half goofball. After hearing that Tom was having surgery on Tuesday, Wayne took a long pause, then replied, So I guess you'll be marking that on your calendar. Tom laughed and scribbled, BS for brain surgery on our calendar in the February 28 box. The weekend before the operation, I kept in motion, trying to prepare. Sunday night, as Tom and I lay in bed, Owsley jumped up between us. After the two fell asleep, I slipped away to our office and turned on the computer. I downloaded a file called what is adult brain tumour, that had five-year survival rates for the four grades of tumour. Statistics were grim for grades three and four, but more hopeful for one and two, so I decided to focus on those. This will be a scary blip in our lives, I thought, then we will move on. On the morning of the operation, I searched for the right words. I love you, everything will be fine. Then I remembered my husband had once explained to me how critical it is to find the right rock-climbing partner. You must trust the person with your life. I turned to him. You're about to climb a mountain, I said, and I am your partner. At the hospital, a nurse pulled out Tom's chart. Okay, craniotomy, she said. Take off all your clothes and put this on. She tossed Tom a light blue gown and directed us over to a curtained space. Tom removed his clothes. Sitting there naked, about to be taken for surgery, he looked profoundly vulnerable. Soon an attendant pulled open our curtain and helped my husband onto a wheeled stretcher. I kissed Tom and whispered, See you soon, I love you. I love you too, Tom replied. Don't forget to eat something, okay honey? Then he looked away. When Tom's sister Anne arrived, I threw my arms around her and cried. Soon afterwards, my sister arrived from Philadelphia. The three of us sat together and waited. Around 6.30pm, Dr Mancini walked in. The surgery went well, he said. I removed the larger tumour, but didn't go for the smaller one because it would have hurt him. It looks like a four. I stared at him. He continued, With a grade four, most people don't live two years. However, I know a handful of people that lived five, seven, nine years. For a moment, it seemed that I could not breathe. Then I moved towards the ICU. I was surprised at how unchanged he was, 
except for that mask and the white bandage wrapped around his head. Tom's eyes, skin, smell and body were just as I had left him several hours before. He opened his eyes. Hi, honey. Hi, sweet, I said. You're doing great. I put my head on his chest, and groggy from the anaesthesia, he drifted back to sleep. A few minutes later, he opened his eyes. Did you talk to Dr. Mancini? Yes, but it's important for you to rest. His voice grew insistent. A one or a two? I felt extreme panic, but thought, I must not lie. No, I replied. Is it a three or a four? Yes. Tom fell back to sleep. By the time my sister pulled me gently out of the hospital that night, the world was cold and eerie, and not the world I used to know. Dr. Mancini stopped by the following day and again described the tumour. What happens next? Tom asked. Radiation and chemotherapy, Dr. Mancini said. Tom took a deep breath and declared, I have had a lot of hurdles in my life, never this big, but I have overcome them. His voice started to break. I love my wife. I love my life. You have something to live for, responded the doctor, and that's very important. Then he turned and left. Later that day, Tom asked me about the smudges he was seeing on people's foreheads. I reminded him it was Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. Tom told me he wanted to pray. This was not something we did often. I suggested we recite the wedding vows we had written. While I struggled to remember them, Tom began to speak, clearly and unwaveringly. I, Tom, take you, Mary Catherine, treasure of my heart and dearest companion, to be my wife, lover and friend, to journey through life with you, beyond the road's end. I will love, comfort and honour you, through good times and bad, all of my days. I spent the night on the cot next to Tom. We slept hand in hand. The next morning I returned home and called my Aunt Marcella and Uncle Hank. Tom and I sometimes spent weekends with them at the beach. Marcella, with decades of nursing experience, was familiar with glioblastoma, a grade 4 tumour. She was also intimately familiar with cancer, having had breast cancer 20 years earlier. I told her that I wanted to pray but did not know how. She suggested, The best prayer is what's in your heart. It doesn't matter if you are desperate or angry. The Lord will hear you. He already hears you. Her words gave me tremendous relief. Back at the hospital, I took Tom for a walk. I feel good now, he told me. I'm not really afraid of death. What I'm afraid of is what might be in between. Me too, I admitted. But if it happens, we'll deal with it. I told Tom what Marcella had said to me and asked if he wanted to pray. He nodded. We held hands. I closed my eyes and said, I am scared. Show us what to do. You see how Tom and I love each other. We will face what situations we must, but we want to go on with our life together. Please help us. Amen. Sam Selesnick, a college friend of Tom's and a surgeon, flew in from New York the morning after we got home from the hospital. A bear-like guy with a bushy beard and a shy smile, he was supportive and encouraging. But he said, it would have been better if the surgeon had been able to get more of the tumour out. Sam gave me the name of a doctor at Sloan Kettering, a cancer hospital in New York City, to get a second opinion. You have to move fast, he warned. It needs to be treated very aggressively. He told us what medical information to send to the physicians. I had learnt that glioblastoma multiform, referred to as GBM, is the most common type of tumour that originates in the brain. It infiltrates rapidly and grows with tentacles into surrounding brain tissue. Some tumours can double in size in a week. 
standard medical treatment is surgery, radiation and chemotherapy. With surgery alone, median survival is 12 to 16 weeks, with radiation and chemotherapy about a year. Tom and I analysed the data hopefully. We reasoned that hundreds of people get GBM and survive. Tom will be one of them. We looked at lists of clinical trials I found online and with the help of friends started calling all over the country asking about each of them. There was pity in the voices of many of the doctors and nurses when I described our situation. One commented, You sound awfully young. I'm 31, I replied. Oh my, she whispered. I believed if we searched hard enough we would find the answer, but after all our work nothing looked promising. Then one Friday the phone rang. It was a doctor named Mark Malkin from Sloan Kettering. He and his colleagues had reviewed our case. We reached the opinion that you need more surgery. I felt relief at his news, then wondered how I could be feeling that way when I had just been told my husband needed more surgery. We dialed Sam, now back in New York. He said he'd find out more. He called back within the hour. They think they can get more out without hurting Tom. I want him to have Dr. Arbett. I've worked with him and he's terrific. A few phone calls later, I had made an appointment on the following Monday with Dr. Ehud Arbett. The next day, Tom, Owsley and I took a walk along the C&O Canal. It was an early spring day. The grey branches were polka-dotted with lime-green dabs of new growth and variegated sunlight seeped through dense trees. The canal stretched along to our right and the water of the Potomac River glimmered to our left. It feels right to me, he said. I felt so horrible before that call. And then that full moon. The day before there had been a full moon, I had said something always happens with one, maybe good, maybe bad, but always weird. Tom went on, I'm not usually a person to believe in. He stopped talking. He closed his eyes in concentration. I waited for him to finish. He began singing a Stevie Wonder song. When you believe in things you don't understand, superficial. He tried again. Superficial. Superstition, I said, fighting back panic. Can you say it? He responded slowly. Superstition. Superficial. Jeez. It's okay. Let's turn around. I took Tom's hand and we walked home in silence. I was shaking. By the time we reached our street, Tom was walking unsteadily. As soon as we entered the house, he went to the couch and fell asleep. I called the doctor to ask about Tom's sudden difficulty with words. He said to take him to the emergency room. At the hospital, I recited the details of Tom's illness to a white-coated resident in neurosurgery and said we were planning to go to New York on Monday morning. The resident gave Tom a series of instructions. Lift this leg, touch your nose. Tom's left side obeyed, but his right side did not. The doctor glanced at me. All right, Tom, what's this? The doctor held up his left hand and pointed to the golden band on his ring finger. Tom concentrated hard. Edding. After my husband underwent a CAT scan, the doctor clipped the film up onto a light board. There's a lot of swelling around the tumour, and it is putting pressure on the brain, he said. We will give him drugs to reduce the swelling and get him in the best shape possible to go up to New York on Monday. The next morning, Sunday, I walked into Tom's hospital room and found him devouring eggs and toast. I held up my left hand. What's this? Wedding ring, he answered. Yay, I thought. 
I then noticed that he was eating messily. He did not have full control of his right hand. He seemed tired and hesitated on some words. His chart described this as moderate aphasia, the loss of ability to use language. We left for New York early Monday morning and met up with Dr. Arbert. You have a very serious tumour, he explained, but with aggressive surgery, then radiation and chemotherapy, you would have a chance. Surgery would not be without risks. You may lose movement on your right side, but if you want to do it, we can schedule the surgery for this week. My husband simply nodded. Later, when we got settled in our hotel room, Tom and I decided to venture out for dinner. After the waiter took our order, I looked at Tom. He had half a head of hair, a U-shaped craniotomy scar, and was making a mess. Tom, I said, a funny thing has happened to us. A few weeks ago, we'd be in a restaurant laughing and drinking. Now we're in grubby clothes, holding hands and making a mess. He smiled and asked, how do you feel about the possibility of me? He swallowed, being handicapped. Sweetheart, you are my whole life. All I want is for you to be here with me. I can deal with anything we need to. I meant this absolutely. Me too, he said. This surgery decision is a no-brainer, no pun intended. We ate pasta and talked about what our future might be like. Maybe we would have a baby. I would work and Tom could take care of the child. That night we went to sleep in each other's arms, at peace and unafraid. Two days later, on the morning of Tom's surgery, I was at Sloan Kettering waiting for news. I noticed a small chapel next to the lobby. I sank into a pew, closed my eyes and allowed the images of Tom to emerge. He is rock climbing, moving gracefully, pulling himself up easily. Next, Tom and I are in kayaks on a river. I am resting, my boat floating in an eddy. Tom's boat glides up next to me. He kisses my cheek as he brushes by, then glides back out into the current. And our wedding. I am descending the stairs in a long moonlight white silk dress. Tom stands at the bottom of the steps, looking up at me. I step into his arms and we kiss. Tom looks into my eyes. You're beautiful. I love you. Then I heard a nurse call my name. I rushed to her desk. Your husband is out of surgery. I ran down the halls to the recovery room. There lay Tom, battered, with dark circles around his eyes. I stroked his shoulder. Sweetie, I'm here. Tom opened his eyes. Hi, my head hurts. My heart leapt. He spoke. A nurse handed me a phone. Dr. Arbett was on the other end. The surgery was very successful, he announced. I asked how much of the tumour he got out. More than 90%. It was a good resection. He is in great shape. Before we knew it, it was April. Our dogwoods were in bloom. The air was warm. Tom was ecstatic. He had no problems with language or his right side. He blurted out to anyone who would listen the story of his miraculous surgery. He brimmed with jubilation and the conviction that he was now okay. We saw signs of hope everywhere. Tom's flowers were blossoming extravagantly, including one bush that had never yielded anything before. He believed this was a good omen. His radiation treatment had begun at Washington Hospital Centre and was to continue every weekday for seven weeks. By mid-April we had a new routine. We got up, did yoga, said prayers and ate. After one of Tom's friends arrived to drive him to his radiation appointment, I would leave for work. Tom's hair was falling out in clumps. Then he started having trouble remembering things. 
By the end of the month, he was nauseated and exhausted. On Saturday, April 29, I went to my morning yoga class. When I returned, Tom was still asleep. What do you feel like having, I asked, rousing him. He replied, Get my white ruse. Water, I guessed. You want water? Yes. Oh God, I thought, the aphasia is back. By early evening, he had hardly eaten anything. I whipped up a fruit shake. He gulped it down. Moments later, a look of fear passed across his face. Oh no. His right arm began to tremble, shaking the table like an earthquake. No, he yelled. His body jerked back as if it were being jolted. The right side of his body flailed. He was screaming. At the emergency room, a CAT scan showed that his brain was swelling. The doctors gave him steroids to bring down the swelling, some Dilantin to control the seizures, and sent us home. By the first week in May, Tom would get stuck trying to find words like left and straight. He would insist on walking, but would sometimes suddenly collapse. And he began having more seizures. I called Dr. Malkin at Sloan Kettering. He told me to FedEx him Tom's latest scans and to stay calm. He would call me on Monday. That night I slept fitfully. I was overcome with fear and grief. In the middle of the night I turned to Tom. Sweet, I need a hug. When I got no response, I took his right arm and pulled it on top of me, expecting the familiar feel of him moving to cradle me in his arms. Instead, I felt a dead weight. It was a feeling of ultimate aloneness. On Monday afternoon, the call came from Dr. Malkin. I've looked at the scans. They're certainly changed since March, but remember, we won't see the maximum results of radiation until six weeks after completion of the treatment. What should Tom do? Stay the course, he replied. As the end of May approached, Tom improved, and my hope rose that the tumour was dying. Also, we had a major milestone to look forward to, our first wedding anniversary, May 29. The year before, we had stored the top of our cake in the freezer, quadruple wrapped in aluminium foil. Wine from the reception rested in a closet, but we would not be drinking it. No alcohol was allowed with the drugs Tom was taking. Still, we looked forward to the day like kids awaiting a special birthday party. Wayne Logan and his wife Meg arrived to help us celebrate. We lounged around the house relaxing. In the late afternoon, Wayne suggested Meg and I go to the store. After we returned home, I stepped into our dining room and saw the table covered with a white cloth and our best dishes. Tom was in the kitchen, grinning proudly and opening cartons from a French restaurant. He walked over, kissed me and said, Surprise! We couldn't go to L'Auberge, so L'Auberge came to us. I was stunned. Wayne and Meg left before dinner, slipping out the door and telling us to have fun. We ate the delicious food by candlelight and reminisced about our wedding, our honeymoon and the trips we had taken together. We talked about things we were looking forward to, the end of radiation and maybe going to a spa. Then we ate the top of our cake, chocolate with raspberry filling. After dinner, we stood together at the sink doing dishes. Cool air breezed through our kitchen, and at that moment, doing dishes together was the most wonderful thing in the world. The alarm sounded. I slammed it off and staggered into the kitchen. My Aunt Marcella appeared in her nightshirt and prepared breakfast. She had come to visit, telling me that she and Hank would stay as long as we needed. Tom had finished radiation treatment on schedule, but a recent scan had revealed that his tumour was not only about the same size, it had shifted. Dr. Malkin at Sloan Kettering recommended starting chemotherapy quickly 
instead of waiting the usual six weeks. We arranged to have the treatments done with Dr. Alan Monzak, an oncologist in Washington. On our first visit, Marcella was sitting with Tom while I went to get lunch in the building lobby. As I finished, the doorman appeared and told me I was wanted upstairs. Marcella put her hands on my shoulders. Tom had had a seizure. It had stopped. He was okay now. I sat next to Tom holding his hand when suddenly his eyeballs rolled back and his whole body stiffened. I held my breath. Stop, make it stop, I thought. An EMS team arrived and took him to the hospital. Doctors gave him drugs to stop the convulsions. They told me that the seizure was probably triggered by the tumour moving into a new area of his brain. Later, as several family members sat with me in the waiting room, my Uncle Hank suggested that maybe more surgery would help. There won't be any more surgery, I said firmly. When they looked at me blankly, I reached into a black portfolio where I kept Tom's scans and pulled out the most recent one. This is ten days ago. When I held it up, I heard gasps. The tumour occupied the space from in front of Tom's ear all the way to the back of his head. It was a fuzzy object with tentacles. And the doctors say it's grown since then, I noted. I wanted to get my husband out of the hospital and away from the chemotherapy, but I needed to be sure it was the right thing to do. I went to Dr. Monzak's office and quizzed him. He said that with chemo there would be, at best, a 30% chance of some tumour shrinkage. What's the chance of it shrinking it completely away? Near zero. I think I could take better care of him at home, I declared. Okay, I'll write the release order, he said quietly. As I stepped into my house, I found a freshly made hospital bed. Tom's parents had set up everything for us. His brother helped me lie him in his new bed, which looked out on our garden. It was a bright day and cool for early summer. We made it, I thought. We are home. Friends came to visit and we took a trip to a mall. It was a big success and I determined that Tom and I would try to have one adventure per day. But anything that involved getting him out of the house was a challenge. Transferring him from a wheelchair to the car, dealing with fade-outs and mini-seizures, trying to decipher what he was saying. But it was always worth doing. One day I took Tom to a nearby aquatic centre. When I wheeled him down the ramp I realised Tom was sobbing. What is it? I asked. Scary, he gasped. He had lost the ability to speak in whole sentences. I started to walk to the side of the pool to show him how shallow the water was. His sob became a yell. I ran back. I promise you are safe, I told him. Even if you fell in, I could hold you up. Look. I lifted his legs up and down. Tom began to calm down. Do you want to stand? I asked. He smiled. I moved in front of Tom and picked him up. He stood for the first time in weeks. Then we danced together in the pool, our bodies rubbing together in the water. Nice. Tom said with an even bigger smile. I wished we could go on like we were, but it was all slipping away fast. I knew my husband was dying, but I still had him with me. I could still touch him, talk to him, hear his heartbeat. My wants for him had changed. First I wanted him to be healthy, then I accepted Tom with deficits and just wanted him to live. Next I began to accept that he would die and wanted to make him comfortable. Finally, I realised all I could do was to help him spiritually. On July 19, Father Dan Riley, a family friend, came to say Mass at our house. 
It was a pleasant summer evening. Some of our family was there with us. Dan began the Mass with a blessing. I read a Buddhist meditation and the priest led us in renewing our baptismal vows. Dan dipped his hands into a bowl of water, blessed my husband's forehead, then invited us to do the same. During the ceremony, Tom faded in and out. Sometimes his eyes were closed, but then he would force them open, blinking. I held his left hand and felt him squeeze mine every few minutes. Marcella read Psalm 23. As I heard the line, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, I reflected on how goodness and kindness had come to Tom and me from more sources than I had ever known existed. The next day my husband was quiet and calm. I wheeled him out onto our back deck. The trees were rustling their sharp green leaves and birds flitted across the lawn. I lifted Tom's head so he could look at the yard. After a while, I knelt down in front of the wheelchair and put my head in his lap and my hands in his. I thanked him for giving me more than I ever imagined and assured him that I would be all right. I thanked him again and again for being my love. I could tell Tom heard what I said. Then he closed his eyes. By Monday, July 24, he took no food or liquid. One of his rose bushes bloomed, the white one. I picked a dozen small blooms and brought them into his room. Owsley assumed a protective position in the doorway, half sitting, half lying. On Tuesday evening, I held Tom's hand and leaned over to kiss his cheek. It's eleven, and I'm going to sleep now. Good night. I love you. At three a.m. my eyes leapt open. I went and looked at Tom's face and saw him breathe in and then out slowly. There was one more breath. Then no more. I lifted his wrist gently. There was no pulse. I stayed with Tom's body, meditating and praying. I envisioned his spirit as a light, moving towards a bigger light and merging into the infinite light. I felt something I had never felt before. The closest I can describe it is mystery. I sensed that Tom had been lifted up. I made the necessary phone calls and two men from the funeral home arrived. Our procession, Tom's body, Owsley, me, moved out the front door through the front yard. Owsley and I remained as the men loaded Tom's body into the van and drove away. I walked back into the yard and found myself standing in the middle of Tom's garden beside the white rose bush. The sun was rising and the sky was spectacular with pinks and purples lighting white-grey clouds. One side of the horizon was still indigo, the other dissolving into light blues and ivories. In the stillness, I felt myself and Tom and Earth and God as one. I know that love endures beyond pain and sorrow. If we were able to choose one thing to outlast all others, what better choice would there be? For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia 